our passage this morning. Uh, in our passage this morning, I should say, Jesus sets his face, his eyes to the cross. That's where we're going to find ourselves this morning. Having prepared his disciples for his departure, having prayed in chapter 17, Jesus sets his eyes to their redemption, to the redemption of those whom God is giving to him, period. Do you get that? So, so when you think of these, these last hours, these, the darkest of hours for our Savior, that's the title, the Savior's darkest hours, the last 24 hours from his arrest to his crucifixion. We see Jesus' eyes and his face is set to the cross, but not just to a cross. Listen, listen, to you. Not just a cross. It's not just an old wooden cross. By the way, that cross is just an old wooden cross. What makes the cross special is him. But the reason why he got up on the cross is you. Not just a cross for the sake of a cross. Now, I love this. When we get to chapter 18, go ahead and turn to John chapter 18. We're going to survey 18 and 19, and I'll explain it a little bit uh, in, in a few minutes. But when you get to chapter 18, verse 1, there's a new scene. Jesus has spent chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 with his disciples in an upper room, preparing them for his departure. Chapter 17 would be like his closing prayer, the high priestly prayer, and then in Verse 1 of chapter 18, John writes this in his gospel. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron. Kidron means creek or a brook. Now, the brook was at a certain location, and this brook was mainly dry during the year, except during the rainy season, season. And it was called the Kidron Valley, the Brook Valley. But this valley would become a dark and foreboding place, become a very confused place. Also, it says, reading the other Gospels, the location more specifically was the Mount of Olives or Gethsemane, and that means oil press. Most likely, there was an oil press in the vicinity of the Mount of Olives, where they were growing olives, but the, mount, the, 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 the press was for the purpose of squeezing the juices out of the olives. And so this is where our Savior was headed to pray with his disciples. Verse 18, again, at the end of verse 1, excuse me, chapter 18, verse 1, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples, and his purpose was to take them and to pray. We notice that John doesn't record that, but we learned that from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the, the synoptic gospels. So Jesus is on his way to the Mount of Olives, gets guarded to Gethsemane to pray. But this is a place where he would be pressed by the sinfulness of humanity. This is the place where his blood would flow from his brow as he thought about what would be happening to him. This is where he would be arrested. It was under such pressure that he himself would ask. Look at verse 11. Put the sword in the sheath, and here it is. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink from it? 
The synoptics record this. If it be possible, let this cup, this cup of divine judgment pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. It is here in these last hours of his life that it goes from bad to worse. From bad to worse. There's betrayal. There's denial. There's trial. And there's crucifixion. Think about it for a minute. There's betrayal. There's denial. There's trial. And there's crucifixion. In a matter of hours. This is fast paced, folks. We're on a, we're on a, we're on a record pace. And the Sanhedrin, the Jews, wanted to get this over as soon as possible because they had the Passover coming and they had to kill him before the Passover, not during. The law, law would not allow it. And so they had to rush this thing through and get it done from, from his betrayal of Judas and the arrest in the garden. From Peter's denial during the Jewish trial, and then you had the Gentile trial, the, the Roman trial, and then finally and ultimately the crucifixion. So it goes from bad to worse. From a close friend betraying him to even a closer friend, Peter, denying him to both Jews and Gentiles rejecting him and putting him on trial to have him killed. 24 hours. I want us to read this morning together the end of this period in chapter 19, verses 23 through 30, the crucifixion. If you stand together with me, and in light of Easter next week, I wanted to read this passage and and preach on this portion of Scripture in 18 and 19. But, But to set the stage of where this is going, I want us to read the crucifixion itself, and that is particularly in verses 23 through 30 of John's Gospel, chapter 19. So follow with me, if you will, in your Bibles. Verse 23 of 19, And the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also to the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. Quote, They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. End of quote. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Wow. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing all that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scriptures, said this, quote, I am thirsty, end of quote. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus said, when, excuse me, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Father in heaven, as we meditate and we think upon this 24-hour period of history in a city called Jerusalem, God, we, this, this was 
done publicly for whoever was around and ultimately for those whom you, Father, would give to your Son. That would be the church, Father. That would be us. Help us not to think that this is just some event that happened 2,000 years ago in a distant, far place that we've never been. But when all this transpired, God, remind our hearts and our souls that you had us in mind when this happened. Because you are holy, you did it for your glory, and you did it for our good. And Father, we are eternally thankful. Father, bless our time together. May the reminder of this passage refresh in our hearts and souls and commitment to you once again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It is here that we see the Son of God confronted with the worst that darkness had to offer. I mean, it is just pouring upon him in this 24-hour period. These events took place at a rapid pace. Here he is taken to trial, beaten, humiliated, okay, humiliated, mocked, and as we just read, crucified in these verses we just read. Yet we see that in the midst of all this darkness, all that darkness had to offer, in the midst of its utmost fury, God was at work for his glory and the existence of his church. Let me, let me bring John's narrative here into perspective. Now, you've got to remember that the events that are recorded here happened way early on, around, what, 30, 33 A.D., right? Well, when this was written, this is between 85 and 90. It's 50 years later that John is writing about this. And I want you to notice something, and this is what this sermon revolves around. It's as he's writing this narrative, what specifically happened in, in, in 18 and 19, these 24 darkest of hours, that John makes seven comments or editorial comments regarding the fulfillment of Christ's word and the scriptures. Woven in to this story, the betrayal of Judas and Jesus' arrest, woven into the trial before the Jews and Peter's denial, woven in the, the, the tension between, between Jewish law and Roman law, between the Jews and Pilate, and even the crucifixion itself to the last second, what John does in between this, where's my pen? Got too excited. <laughs> he, he weaves into this tapestry through this, 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 these 24 hours of human history, which would affect the whole world, woven in this as a reminder that God is in control. How does he do it? Well, primarily he does it by saying this. The words of Christ were fulfilled. The words of Christ were fulfilled. So that the word of Christ would be fulfilled. So that the scriptures would be fulfilled. So that the scriptures would be fulfilled so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. I said it seven times because it's here seven times. Why does John do this? He does it for the church. He does it as a reminder to us of the veracity 
of the Word of God. It's truthfulness that we can depend on His Word because it's His Word. You see, here's uh, putting it into further perspective, you've got to remember it's 85 to 90 A.D. Peter's dead. Paul's dead. All the eyewitnesses, most likely except for John, they're gone. There's no longer any eyewitnesses. So how are we going to find out? If the eyewitnesses are gone, what do we have left? The Word. John knows this. So, so the Spirit's moving him to incorporate this into the historical event of the betrayal, the denial, the trial, and the crucifixion. Why? For us, 2,000 years later, for the church today, as well as yesterday and tomorrow. You see, John's concern is expressed in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written. In other words, he's saying, I've recorded these so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. This is the evangelist. He's, he's recording in 18 and 19 the fulfillment of Christ's word in the scriptures because he wants the reader to come to believe in faith in Jesus Christ. And by having faith in Christ, having eternal life. That's why he wrote this book. So here in this gospel, John reminds us of two inseparable truths. Number one, the veracity or the accuracy and the reliability of God's word, of Christ's word in chapter 18 and the Old Testament scriptures in chapter 19. And you'll see that played out in just a bit. He reminds us in the midst of Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial, the unjust trial, which was just crazy. It was just crazy. It was totally unjust. And the crucifixion, God was sovereignly fulfilling his word to the church. It hadn't even existed yet. To remind us once again, he's absolutely in control. And therefore, his word can be absolutely trusted. John's editorial comments also show that God is not far removed, but rather, to the contrary, is intimately involved with the affairs of this world and even your life. You see, not only is God intimately involved in the life of his son when he was here, but because you are in Christ, therefore, he is intimately involved in your life as well. Or at least he wants to be. You see, God is not aloof. Just a short cursory reading of chapters 18 and 19, where you got all this going on in a 24-hour period, you would want to cry out, God, where are you at? Darkness has enveloped Christ. It, it just totally put his disciples in disarray. The, 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 ma the, the masses have come to Christ. It, the trial is nothing but mob rule. It's not a legitimate trial, whether before the Sanhedrin or before Pilate. None of this was legit. It was an unjust trial. And so you look at this and you're going, this is nuts. This is unfair. It's crazy. What was driving this was mob rule. 
in the midst of all the darkness that humanity can, humanity can throw upon Christ, you have God sovereignly in control. No matter how dark it gets, God incorporates the sinful, selfish will of man into his plan. I want you to write that down. No matter how dark it gets, God weaves the sinful, selfish will of man into his plans. I can't tell you to the nth degree how he does it. I just know he does it because the word tells us that. In other other words, as man's sinfulness unfolds, God incorporates it into the fulfillment of his purposes for his glory. And all God's people said, amen. So when you look around today, God is not aloof today, just like he wasn't aloof during those 24 hours of Jesus' life. You see, we don't have to see to believe, do we? We've got the word of God to tell us. And that's why faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So God incorporates it into the fulfillment of his own glory, which is what? Your salvation. You see, God saves for his glory. And so your salvation results in the glory of God. And so God is orchestrating all this. God is, God is using the sinful selfishness of humanity to incorporate, and he's incorporating it to fulfillment of his glory, which is your salvation and the creation of his church. Jesus says, I will build my church. And 18 and 19 are a part of that happening, is a part of that happening. Let's take a closer look. In chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, here we have the arrest. And here we have in that arrest, you have Judas's betrayal. And I really think John, writing this gospel, is focusing really more on the betrayal than the arrest. The other gospels give more, give attention, more detail to the, tri- to the arrest, excuse me. But here it is, Judas's betrayal. Verse 2, now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Why? For prayer. Verse 3, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. It was nighttime. It was late in the evening. Or early in the late night, dark. So then, verse 4, Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. Now, I want you to notice what happens next. And Judas also was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, what happened? Look what it says. They drew back and fell to the ground. My goodness. Why is that there? John, why do you include this? To show us that Jesus is in absolute control. He is allowing them to arrest him. He's in command of the events. Because he's in command of God's glory, he's in command, therefore, of our salvation. This is not happenstance. I love what John Calvin writes, quote, the evangelist states more clearly with what readiness Christ went forth to death. 
but at the same time describes the great power which he exercised by a single word in order to inform us that the wicked men had no power over him except so far as he gave permission, end of quote. Turn with me to 10, 14 through 18 of John's gospel. We see this alluded to in the good shepherd. Verse 13 of chapter 10, Jesus says, he flees because he is a hired hand and not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the father knows me, I know the father and I lay down my, I lay down my life for the sheep. It's what he's doing. That's the emphasis. It's emphatic. It's what I am doing. I love verse 16. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. Hint, hint, I'm going to the Gentiles. The gospel is going to the Gentiles. It's not just the fold of the Israel, the Jews. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. I'm going to incorporate Gentiles with Jews, and they will become my people. It's called the church. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. Notice what I lay down my life. The only reason you're arresting me, the only reason you're putting me on trial is because I'm giving my life to you. I'm in control. I'm allowing you to do this because I want this to happen because I love those the Father is given to me, which is you. Isn't that precious? Look at verse 18. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own what? Initiative. Jesus said, this is what I'm doing. When I give my life to be nailed to that cross, I'm doing this. I'm in control of the situation. There's no accidents here. I'm not going to cross because I've lost control. I'm going to cross because I am in control. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And it's because I've received it from my Father. Wow. Your salvation is intentional. It's not an accident. So when Christ is going to the cross, he's going for those names who are already written in the Lamb's book of life. When Christ is going to the crucifixion, he's going because he's going to deliver those in whom the Father has given to him. Wow. Beloved, this is nothing but humbling. This does not allow the chest to puff out. Causes me to fall to my knees and to praise God for such a grand salvation. As Paul said in Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians, there's no room for boasting. This is not a man-centered gospel. This is a Christ-centered gospel. This is not about man being so good that God decided to send his son to help good people get saved. No, no. This is about a God saving dead people in their sins who are undeserving of salvation. This is about God being pitiful, having pity on sinners and showing mercy, grace, and love in spite of them. We cannot water down the sinfulness of man because all it does is water down the grace and the mercy and the love of God. Back to our main text in chapter 18. So, because they fell back to the ground, because 
Christ was in control, and they got a simple little glimpse of his divinity, which knocked them down, I believe. Jesus then asked again, whom do you seek in order to get them back up to get this thing going on again? So that he, they would arrest him. You see that? So praise God that he said, okay, who are you seeking again? Get back up, guys. Almost like that, you know? I'm here. I got to get to that cross. I'm in control of this. You got to get back up. You're arresting me. We're going forward with this because I have you in mind. I have a Michael in mind. I have Danita in mind. You see, God is so infinite and eternal and holy and beyond our understanding that when Christ goes to the cross, I believe he had all the saved souls in mind, even their names. So I could even say he wasn't just thinking of the church in mass, but he was thinking of each individual that made up the church. Put your name there, beloved. Personalize this. Let's go to the next one. Well, actually, let's not. Let's stay here for one more second, okay? I want you to turn back to chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, verse 6 and 12. Look at verse 6, because this is a fulfillment. Notice what he says in verse 9, which is the point to fulfill the word which he spoke. Let me pause here for a minute. Let me show you where we're going, okay? He's going to repeat this phrase over and over again. Go to verse 32 of chapter 18, to fulfill the word of Jesus. You see that? Go to chapter 19, verse 24. This was to fulfill the scripture. Go to verse 28. John, again, another editorial comment. This was to fill, fulfill the scripture. Go to verse 36 and 37. For these things came to pass to what? Fulfill the scripture, verse 37. And again, another scripture to fulfill. Over, this is the tapestry. This is what's bringing this all together. Though these are individual events, though an individual betrayed Christ, though Peter denied him, though he was put on trial, though you have these individual events, together they make one big picture. God fulfilling his word to himself and to his people. So when you go back to Jesus' prayer and you go to verse 6 in chapter 17, I have manifested your name to them whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Notice he says, those whom you have given me. Verse 8, for the excuse me, verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me. And so Jesus is going to the cross for those whom the Father was given him. And that's why we have in verse 9 of our passage, to fulfill the word which he spoke, quote, of those whom you, Father, have given me, I lost not one. Wow. Let's go to the next scene. This next scene is 12 through 27. This is the trial before the Jews. Before Annas and Caiaphas. It primarily talks about Annas. But I want you to notice woven in this is also Peter's denying of Jesus three times. Judas just betrayed him. Judas is gone. Peter now denies Jesus. And I want you to look, go ahead, and we're going to go fast forward to verse 27. 
Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. What is this? Nothing more than another fulfillment of Scripture, this time chapter 13, verse 38, where Jesus, where Peter was like confident in who he was. Oh, Peter was confident in his walk with Christ, follow Christ. He is the one that made the great confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He made that confession. He is the one that chopped off the servant's ear or the lobe. Where Jesus said, put up that sheath and, and healed his ear. So here's this man full of brimming with confidence. And Jesus earlier on in the upper room, just the evening before, said that before a cock, cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And here it is fulfilled. Again, Jesus' word is fulfilled to a T. I love this because this is Jesus dealing with a man a disciple who is overconfident in himself. Oh, how we need this one. You see, God loves us so much, he never wants us to depend upon ourselves. He never wants us to be overconfident. He always wants us, in a sense, to be children to him and always have that need of him, always have that want of him. You know, I don't care how old we are in the faith, we'll never get to get over being a child of God. To him, we're always a child. I might be a grown-up to my children. I might be a a grown-up, spiritually mature believer to someone in their 20s and 30s. But to God, I'm always his child. And as a heavenly father, he never wants any of his children to be brimming with overconfidence. But always having that childlike faith. Right? It's a great lesson there. The difference between Judas and, and Peter, real quick, Judas is gone. He's off the scene. But as the story unfolds, we see Peter still hanging around, still there, still watching, still waiting, going to the tomb. And the beautiful story at the end of John's gospel is that Jesus restores him. We all get like Peter at times, don't we? We always do. Why? Why? Because Peter had true saving faith. Judas didn't lose his salvation. He never had it to begin with. And in due time, it was exposed. See, true saving faith actually perseveres. Even though you stumble and you fall tremendously like Peter, you still persevere. You still hang around. You still want Christ. You still desire to follow him. That's the difference between Peter and Judas. Let's go on to the next scene. Okay? The next scene. Is 28 through 40 of chapter 18. Here we go again. We've got a trial, but this time it's going from Jewish court to Gentile court. Here it comes from under being under Jewish law to Roman law. If it was, ex- if, if, if they followed through with Jewish law, then Jesus would have been stoned. It was only under Roman law that he would be what? Crucified. That's important. Look at 31 and 32. So Pilate said to them, take him yourselves. Judge him according to your law, Jewish law. The Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. You've got to do this. We know they wanted him killed. Verse 32. Again, an editorial comment by John. To fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying what kind of death he was about to die. That's why I went from the Jewish courts to the Roman court system. 
I think this refers to 12, 32, and 33. Excuse me. If you go back in John's Gospel, Jesus says this, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the rule of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. That word lifted up is in reference to when they nailed him to the cross, the cross was laying down. And they nailed him to the cross. They had to lift the cross up for everyone to see him. That's what he's referring to there. The crucifixion. Now, why did it happen that way? Why? 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 Verse 32, to fulfill the word of Jesus. Jesus himself said, I will be lifted up. And so the word is being fulfilled. So what do you have here is in chapter 18, three times, Christ's word is fulfilled. In verse 9, to fulfill the word which he spoke, of those whom he has given me, I will lose none of them. His word was fulfilled again in Peter's denial and the cock crowing. And then again, in what kind of death he was to die. He was to be crucified, not stoned to death. Wow. Incredible, isn't it? In the midst of all this darkness, God is at work, beloved. Stop right there. If you're a child of God, sometimes you still go through darkness. Listen, if Jesus being the Son of God, went through darkness. You better believe we're going to have our own bouts of dark times. Question, where is God at at that moment? Our experience doesn't teach us anything. The Word of God will teach us He's right there, even though you don't feel Him around. Do you think Jesus for a moment was feeling really good? Do you think Jesus for a moment was feeling that His Father was around any time during this? It wasn't about that, was it? It wasn't about how he was feeling. It was about why he came. So he put all his feelings aside because he had you in mind. Isn't that something? Sometimes we're called to sacrifice our feelings for the sake of others, for the sake of exalting Christ. God is in control. First, by reporting that the soldiers fell back, we see Christ in control there. The next time, the three occasions where he's fulfilling his word, Christ is in control. He's so involved in the details, so engaged throughout, that even in the hands of sinners, even though they are putting him to death, godless men, though they seem to be in control, Christ was in control of the situation. So we see men Betraying, men denying, men trying, and men crucifying him. Meanwhile, John is saying this. Yeah, they're doing all that, right? But Jesus is fulfilling his word. Jesus is control. Because that's where he's going. That's where he's going. Why is he going there? Not because it's wooden. Not because it's like a T. For you. Let us never understand, underestimate the words of going to get, to redeem those the Father has given to me. That's you, that's the church. That's precious. Let's keep going, chapter 19. This is going to be a lot shorter, okay? A lot shorter. And then after this, we're going to follow with some lessons to learn from these two chapters. 
In chapter 19, verses 24 and 25, we read this. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it should be. Why did this happen? This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Look at verse 25. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Because the scripture said they were going to happen, therefore the soldiers did it based upon what the scripture said. Not because they were aware of it themselves and wanted to obey scripture. They were just doing what the scripture said were going to happen. If God says something's going to happen, beloved, it's going to happen no matter what. The will of man can never thwart the will of God. Right? Yeah, praise God. If so, then there's no guarantee of heaven. We see this happen again. John reminds us again, 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said this, I am thirsty. Think of the details here. God is a detailed God, isn't he? Look at 36 and 37. For these things came to pass to what? In order to fulfill the scriptures. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him who they pierce. Real quick, if you want to write this down, back in verses, excuse me, 24 and 25 is the fulfillment of Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, About dividing the outer garments, that's Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. Verses 28 and 29 about I am thirsty comes from Psalm 69, 21. Psalm 69, 21. Now remember, these Old Testament passages were written hundreds of years before this actually took place. There's no other book like this, is there? No. And then verses 36 and 37 are referenced to Psalm 34, 20. Psalm 34, 20. And Zechariah 12, 10. Zechariah 12, 10. Zechariah says, I will pour out Excuse me, God says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Wow. So why did John leave these, why did he weave, excuse me, these seven editorial comments through chapters 18 and 19? as he's describing these actual historical events during these, these darkest of hours, the very last 24 hours of Jesus' life, he's weaving these, set, these seven editorial comments. Why, why, why? What are the lessons that we can learn? Why is it important to know that in the midst of all this darkness, God is fulfilling his word in Christ? He's fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. I have six of them. Number one to show that Jesus was absolutely in control of his life. Number one, to show that he was absolutely in control. He is not accidentally or forcefully gave his life. He was not forced to give it. And it wasn't an accident. It was intentional and it was genuine. This shows, if nothing else, that God was in control. As men go about their sinful ways, doing what is natural for them to do, as they make sinful decisions, God is in control. If your coworker is a pain, and because you're a Christian and they don't like you and try to make your life miserable, God is still in control. Right? 
on the surface, throughout this narrative, on the surface of your own life, throughout your own narrative, to the naked eye, it seems that God is nowhere around. But the Word of God says He's there. He's intimately involved and He's working out His plan. This should affect our prayers. Should affect our attitudes, our approach to God, our approach to others, even our approach to our enemies. Why do you think Jesus says, Love your enemies? Because he knew his father was in control. You see, when you're in Christ, you're truly free. You're free to be persecuted. You're now free to suffer in a way that you would never imagine, with the attitude you never could, being apart from Christ. Because now you have a willingness to go through it because you, you know you're doing it for him. You're doing it for him. And now you're like Paul and you compare, okay, here's all my last 20 years of suffering on earth or 30 years or five years. And then here's the promises of God in my future. Let's compare the two. Wow, this absolutely pales in comparison to what God has for me in all eternity. And it's all because in between these two is the cross of Christ. It's because of Jesus. So what this is is a reminder, point number one, that no matter how bleak, how hopeless it looks, God is in control. Number two is to show us that Jesus is the Christ. These seven editorial comments are there that is to show us that Jesus is the Christ, to point specifically to the fact that out of all the billions of people who existed, the, the millions before Christ, the billions, what, seven billion today? Okay, of all the human beings who ever walked the face of this planet, it comes down to one person. His name is Jesus. Think about it. Out of the billions and billions of people that walked this planet, the Word of God is pointing to one. And John's just reinforcing that. Number three, so that many would believe that Jesus is the Christ. Let's never forget that this is an evangelistic message. Don't ever forget chapter 20, verse 31. But these have been written. I selected these events and I wrote them down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. This belief, by the way, is an ongoing belief, not a one-time thing I do when I get on with my life. That is never the concept or the teaching of the Bible's definition of faith and belief. It's an ongoing, persevering faith. It's a following. If you really, you, you follow after Christ. Right? It's an ongoing following. Though you're going to stumble, though you, you'll blow it at times like Peter, you still get back up and you continue to hang around and you follow after Christ. Number four, it's related to show us that true saving faith is authentic and real. Spirit given faith rests solely on the Word of God. Let's never forget that we have John here writing this letter. All the other eyewitnesses are gone. He's dying off soon. He knows he's an old man. So he's, he's writing it. He's like, what, I'm going to die. There's no more eyewitnesses. How are folks in the future going to understand who this Jesus is? Oh, I'm going to write this down, right? He started his letter in 1 John that way. I handled it. You know, I, I saw, I, I touched it. The word of life, I, I handled him. I want you to know that. I'm the last one remaining of the eyewitnesses. Now, how are we going to know the word? The word. Notice what's going to happen in chapter 20 of John when the disciples 
All of but one see him. The one that did not is called Thomas. You know him. That's why he's called Doubting Thomas, because at first he doubted until he saw. After eight days, the disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came. The doors had been shut. He stood in their midst. He just came through somehow. And he says, peace be with you to his disciples. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it to my side. This is the resurrected body. This is the ascended. This, this is after the resurrection. This is our Savior. You know what he chose to do? The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he chose to get off his throne, to take on the form of a human body, and to get it messed up, to get it pierced, hands and feet, and pierced in the side, and take on that body for all eternity. Remember, he never had that human body. Why? Because it will always be a reminder. Just think, you'll be 1,000 years into heaven into glory. We'll be there together. We're talking down the road, all of us together. We're going to be there. We're going to be a thousand years down the road, but we'll always see our Savior, and it will always, these will always be a reminder that we're there, we're there with him by his grace because of what he did. It will always be a reminder. Isn't this precious? But notice what John does with this. Thomas answered after touching, said to him, my Lord and my God, Light bulb moment, so to speak. And notice what Jesus said. Because you have seen me, you have believed? Hmm? It's a question. Now notice what he says. Blessed are they who do not see and yet believed. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So what does John do as he's explaining these last the, these last four or five events in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. He's saying, I want to remind you because I'm going off the scene. I'm the last eyewitness. I'm dying off. I want you to realize something, that I'm leaving you the word of God. And it's even a greater eyewitness than myself. And so he points to the fulfillment of Jesus' word. He points to the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures because they all point to who he is. And that's why John says, I don't want you to walk on away wondering who this Jesus is. I want to confront you with who he is. And the only way to do that now when I'm off the scene is by this book. Number five is to elevate the authority of God's word before his sheep. And to bolster our confidence in the word of God. The world's out there attacking it left and right. But... It's here to bolster our confidence in God's word. And then finally, to remind us that through human narrative, through human story, human history, God is fulfilling his word. He's fulfilling his promises. He's fulfilling his redemptive will to himself, to his people, to the church today, and to Israel to come. May God bless the preaching of his word.